Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Thursday, August 19th, and we are sure glad you're here, and we're especially glad to have Carol Dweck here. Carol, welcome. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, we, we really appreciate your taking the time. Future of Education is sponsored by my employer, Illuminate, and the project I work on is called Learn Central. It's a free social network for educators with Illuminate baked in. We hope you'll come and uh, play around there and find some things of value. We have put out the call for proposals for our Global Education Conference, November 15th to 19th, 2010. That is a free online five-day conference. This should really be fun. We have a tremendous set of partners uh, who are providing speakers and uh, other who are coming in without, from outside of those partnerships to talk about a globally connected learning. So please uh, go to globaleducationconference.com, sign up either to present or to attend. Coming up on the Future of Education next week, an interesting guest, Amber Mack, not an educator, but wrote a brilliant book on the use of social media by organizations. I think it's well worth the time. That's earlier in the day on the 23rd. Then Kathleen Cushman on Fires in the Mind. The folks from BYU-Idaho who were profiled in Anya Kamenetz's um, DIYU are going to talk about their learning model and George Siemens and lots more fun ahead. Uh, keep looking at that schedule. hope there's something that you'll enjoy. If you've missed the session, of course, the recordings are up on futureofeducation.com. The chat last night with Linda Darling-Hammond is there, uh, Kyle Ruddick on their One Day on Earth project and how educators can get involved in that collaborative film, and David Wood on the fascinating Get Paid for Who You Are topic. Uh, if you didn't hear about that, it's worth reading the blog post. Charles Fidel on the Neuroscience of Learning, Milton Chan on Education Nation, and lots more. Again, all of those recordings up at futureofeducation.com. If this is your first time in Illuminate, we're sure glad you're here. This is a participative environment. The first thing I want to ask you to do is to go up to View Layouts and switch to the Wide Layout. You'll have a much better experience reading the chat. And if someone comes into the session and they complain about having a hard time following the chat, please do encourage them to, to make that change. It will be hard for me to notice when I'm um, asking for all questions. At the bottom of the participant window, you'll see a smiley face, a clapping hand, a confused look, or a thumbs down. Those are, we encourage the use of those in order to let us know how you're feeling about how things are going. We expect mostly smiley faces and clapping hands. To the left, you'll see a hand with a green up arrow. That's your way of raising your hand if you want to ask Carol a question, which you can do by taking the microphone. Uh, before you do that, please do go up to Tools, Audio, and run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure that your microphone is configured. You are welcome to ask your questions in the chat. Uh, if you ask a question during the session and we miss it or someone doesn't answer it and we go to the Q&A, please post that question again because it's hard to follow all of them as we're moving along. Okay, now we're going to give you a chance to let us know where you're participating from. To the left of the map, you'll see a laser pointer. It's a wand with a red star at the end. If you click on that, and you click on the map, we'll know where you are joining us from. And I don't feel bad about ending that sentence with a preposition because Carol, in your forward to your book, you claim that uh, you, you lost some of those conventions in order for the, uh, the book to flow, and I've just done the same thing, haven't I? <laughs> yes, you have. <laughs> Very appropriately. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> Okay, so it looks like India, Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, Canada, the U.S., and I'm going to guess France, or wherever you're participating from, or if you're listening to the recording, we are sure glad that you have joined us for this session. And please feel free to put in the chat where you're listening from, temperature, time of day, that kind of fun stuff. People like seeing that. So Carol, I want to let you know that the uh, most fun for me in these interviews are the family dinner conversations that I get to have afterwards. I reread your book for the interview, yeah. and I am now buying a copy for each of my children. I just think it's such a great message. Do you hear that from other people? I, I do hear um, that from people that they want their kids to read it, they want to discuss the concepts, and they want to live the concepts as a family. 
Well, I'm I'm glad, and uh, I really think the book made a significant difference in my own way. I probably read it about six months ago, and I feel as though my own parenting has changed because of it. And I'm hopeful that we're we're exposing you to new people here tonight, or those who would like to to learn more about the book. Mm -hmm. um, it also seems that almost everything I read now quotes you. Do you feel that you that the um, I'm guessing you're seeing those, those same references to your work. It must make you feel good to know that other people have picked up on this theme. It's very gratifying that so many people writing articles and books now have resonated to the ideas and, and feel that they can integrate it into their own thinking. Very, very gratifying. So you probably rehearse this every day. But some of the people who are attending, I know, will not have read the book, and we're going to want to encourage them to do so. So could we get you to tell just a little overview of the story? Yes. You mean uh, describe the mindset? Describe mindsets. Yes, I'd be delighted to do that. In my research, which I've done now over many years, I've found that some people think of their most basic qualities like their intelligence, their talents, as something that's fixed. They think they have a certain amount and that's that. And what I show in my work is that this fixed mindset often makes people afraid to venture out of their comfort zone, make mistakes, because they're afraid it will reveal a deficiency in their permanent ability. They are concerned that they look smart at all times and at all costs. But other people have a growth mindset. They think their basic qualities can be cultivated, even talents can be grown through their effort, through instruction. And what I find is that people, whether they be children or adults who have this growth mindset, are more challenge-seeking and more resilient. They don't care about mistaking, making mistakes now. They care about learning and growing over time. So in the book, you tell the story of the, I think they're 10-year-olds who are uh, involved in this experiment. And I'd love it if you tell an abbreviated version of that. But I also get the sense from the book that in many ways, you're telling your own story. That, that there's a very human element to the book that where you feel like what you learned here is actually really helping you in your own life. Yes. Um, my own research has changed me. And um, I had very much or pretty much a fixed mindset growing up. Um, I thought I always had to be smart, look smart, that people's respect for me um, was based on that. And through my own research, I learned that there's a different way of being. When I wrote the book, I had a choice of being more kind of didactic or really telling my story too, which is unusual for an academic to um, kind of reveal personal things in, in writing. But I really wanted to make that contact with my reader and to say, I've been there too. Should I talk about the little boys? I'd love that. Um, when I was a young researcher, I was just starting out. I was in my 20s. And um, I was interested in how kids coped with failure. Uh, so I was giving children problems, first that they could do pretty well, and then they got harder, and reached a point where they really could not succeed readily on them. So some kids, acted as though it was the end of the world, and I was familiar with that. But then one little boy, when we gave him these difficult problems, pulled up his chair, rubbed his hands together, smacked his lips, and said, I love a challenge. Another little boy, another 10-year-old, uh, same situation, looked up at us and said, you know, I was hoping this would be informative. 
Well, I thought, well, you know, what planet are these kids from? I don't live on that planet. But I understood that they knew something that I didn't know and something that I needed to know. Right then and there, it became my ambition to figure out their secret and to bottle it and be able to give it to other kids, other people. So I, I like to say that if I ever had a role model, it was these two little kids. They showed me that setbacks were not the end of the world. They were something that could be seized for learning. Over time, as I discovered the mindsets, I knew that that was their secret and that I could give it to other people. So you make a distinction, it seems to me, in the book uh, between um, helping get people in the mindset uh, by providing them with a little bit of a story or something that is related to growth versus actually kind of consciously choosing uh, or, or learning long-term the mindset. Um, mm -hmm. how, how do you go from the first to the second? Okay, well, as Steve is saying, sometimes, you know, these mindsets, I write about them as though they're very solid and stable, but, but different things can put us in different mindsets. For example, when we feel we're being really evaluated, we could get into this fixed mindset where we feel our qualities are permanent and we have to prove them. And when people, uh, when someone's being very nurturing and guiding toward us and we really put ourselves in their hands, we can, um, in that situation, have more of a growth mindset where we feel, yes, our qualities can be developed and we're focused on learning. In some of our research, we put people into these different mindsets temporarily. We might have them read an article um, that uh, that advocates the growth mindset or fixed mindset temporarily, says that uh, research has supported one or the other. And that's um, when we're investigating how the mindsets affect people's behaviors. But we also have changed people's mindsets in a more permanent way. For example, we have a computer program for adolescents called Brainology. Um, and we've shown that when kids go through this uh, program, it, um, the, the program teaches them about the brain, it teaches them the growth mindset, that every time they stretch themselves to learn something new, their brains form new connections and over time they get smarter. And we've shown that this can change students' mindsets in a more sustained way and affect their achievement. Other researchers have created uh, mindset workshops for managers and shown that their mindsets can be changed in a more lasting way. And when it is, they're more open to feedback and criticism from their employees. So. It can be changed in a longer term way, but it takes more. So Carol, when I read the book, I, um, I thought of uh, one of my favorite authors is Dan Ariely, who I don't know how you would mm -hmm. classify him, but maybe he's a behavioral economist or a psychologist or something. Yeah. You'll know a better phrase. Yeah. But, so Dan writes these sort of popular books about um, one who's called Predictably Irrational, and he talks about the degree to which just being aware of the psychological effect oftentimes um, uh, reduces or eliminates it. Is there a degree to which just understanding mindsets in and of itself has an impact? Yes, but not that impact. I think sometimes um, a lot of the things he writes about are errors that people typically make. And if they're aware of the pitfalls and the likelihood of making those errors, they can, that can be eliminated. But um, in the case of the mindsets, the more you're aware of them, the, the, be the better it is. And in fact, um, some people tell me they 
changed just from learning about the two mindsets and what each one was like. That that kind of prompted them to go on the road toward change. Um, many parents say they will, ex and teachers, they will explain the two mindsets to their children or students in detail. And in fact, in my book, I have a mindset diagram that kind of pits the two mindsets against each other. What do you say to yourself in a fixed mindset when you hit, uh, when you uh, see a challenge? What do you say to yourself when you hit an obstacle? And what do you say in those same situations from a growth mindset? So I was interested in how when I looked honestly at my own behavior, actually it wasn't looking at my behavior, it was looking at my beliefs about my children that I realized when I first mm -hmm. read the book that I actually would have claimed not to have a fixed mindset, but my own beliefs about my own children uh, told me that was a lie. And uh -huh. um, it occurs to me <laughs> that oftentimes the fixed mindset approach to someone else comes from having a fixed mindset about yourself. Is that an oversimplification mm -hmm. or does that actually match up? Sometimes it is the case that you treat others um, and you communicate things to others from your own fixed mindset. For example, um, a teacher who has a fixed mindset might talk about geniuses or kids who are uh, uh, born smart. But sometimes you can be promoting a fixed mindset in your child from a different place. For example, in our society, there's been a fervent belief that you can build children's self-esteem by praising their intelligence. Uh, fixed mindset parents, growth mindset parents, they were praising children's intelligence, thinking they were helping their kids. My research shows that praising children's intelligence puts them into a fixed mindset, makes them more interested in looking smart than in learning, and makes them vulnerable when they fail. So sometimes really well-meant practices can create a fixed mindset in kids with all its vulnerabilities, even though the person delivering the praise, offering the praise, may not have a fixed mindset themselves. And, and quite, and, and is your, your uh, experiments there are so illuminating, but often with the best of intentions. Yes, yes, with the best of intentions. So it was also curious to me, uh, a, a, a couple of places in the book I kind of noted where you were sort of indicating that we even have some larger cultural ways in which we perpetuate um, the fixed mindset. Um, using the phrase hardworking as a sort of code for someone who's maybe not as smart, you know, in a, mm -hmm. in a letter of recommendation, or the story of yeah. the tortoise and the hare. Mm -hmm. So do you find yourself kind of noticing these things quite a bit? I do, I do. Uh, so I think in our culture, we often worship natural talent. We, we look at our heroes, be they sport, sports heroes or um, other kinds of heroes, and we don't see the incredible effort they've put in over years and years, and we think, oh, they're just talented. They were born that way. They're naturals. And then when we contrast someone that we know has worked hard, we say, oh, they're just a hard worker. They aren't naturally talented. Well, I, have, I give my students at Stanford the assignment to identify a hero of theirs and then go do the research. Uh, go do the library or internet research on that person's history. It is almost never the case that their hero hasn't worked harder than anyone else. Uh, so in our society, there's often, and it's a fixed mindset belief, 
that if you have ability, you shouldn't need effort. And that is just a very wrong and damaging idea. Uh, everyone needs effort. Any ability that you have is just a starting point. And the effort takes you the rest of the way. In my book, I do talk about the story of the tortoise and the hare. And it doesn't make you want to be the tortoise. It means only if you're dull and plodding and maybe you can get there if the hare goes to sleep too many times. You really want to be a hardworking hare, not a tortoise at all. And so I think the more people understand, and especially the more kids understand, that their heroes have become heroic through their dedication and hard work, um, the more hard work will have a good name, not a bad name. And you just raised what I think is also a really interesting part of the book, which is it's not just the direct messages that we give to others, but oftentimes it's the way we talk about other people that sends a message to our children or students. You know, that mm -hmm. person is so talented or, uh, or whether we're criticizing or uh, adoring somebody, we can send a message that that's about talent and not about work. Mm-hmm. Same thing when we talk about good people, bad people, talented people, not talented people. It means that we think people have inherent traits that they cannot develop. You just happen to be lucky and you have it, or you happen to be unlucky and you don't. And that is not a view that serves children well. So as I read some of your examples, the, the Marva Collins example is just uh, stunning. But it, uh, I kept feeling like there's a deeper underlying theme here, uh, which is you spend a lot of time, I think, in the book describing the words to use because it's, it seems like you're going, you have gone through this process yourself and you recognize the need people have to understand what you can say. But it feels mm -hmm. as though there's something even more core that needs to take place, which is it's not really about the words as much as it's about what you really believe. And Marva yeah. really believes in those kids. And I can almost imagine that she could say mm -hmm. the wrong words and it would still be okay just because she mm -hmm. so clearly believes in them. Yes, yeah, she... Um, the most wonderful thing, she took four-year-olds from the Chicago ghetto, essentially, and by, um, she took them in September, and by Christmas they were all reading, um, not to mention discussing Shakespeare. <laughs> she really believed. Um, I think the words in general need to support the belief. So the belief needs to be there, but... It's only com it's communicating to kids, the, the beliefs are communicated to kids through your words and through your actions. And so I tell parents and teachers, kids need to know that you value and respect effort, improvement, tenacity, challenge seeking, that that is really what you value, not quick successes, not things that they can already do perfectly. And the more we sit around the dinner table or stand in front of the classroom and say, who had a wonderful struggle today? Who learned something they didn't know before? Who's working on something they didn't know how to do before? Who is planning to take on a hard task and learn it? So then that saying, this is, this is what I value, this is what I admire, and then kids will adopt that. So I, I think you do work with middle schools, is that correct? Yes, some of the work is with okay, middle so schools. So I'm wondering, when you go to talk to those teachers, how many of them just need help in understanding to communicate that they believe in the students, and how many of them actually need help in learning to believe in the students? Um, I'd say that many of them 
already believe in the students and need and have, many tell me, they have been looking for a way. They believe in that potential and they have been looking for a way to help kids unlock that potential. But you're right, um, many of those teachers also um, don't any longer believe that all kids have the potential to learn. And then they need to know what the new neuroscience is teaching us about the brain plasticity being so much greater than we ever thought it was before, about our coming to understand the basic components of intelligence. And not too far in the future, we're going to be able to teach those to kids. So they, they really need to know that in the past we believed and neuroscience might have told us the brain was this stable thing. Some of us got better ones than others of us got. But now we don't think that at all. It's so dynamic. It's so malleable and we just have to figure out the best ways to, to make it um, the brain blossom. So yes, some of those teachers really do need the mindset message themselves. I had to laugh at myself because I got to the section about art, you know, where you have the pictures of people who'd read the, who'd gone through the, the drawing from the right side of your brain or whatever it is workshop. Yes. And I found myself wanting to say, oh, that's them, but I could never do that. I said, so why was I feeling that way, even reading the book, even thinking about this? And I realized for me it came from a fear. And the fear was that I would fail. So I gave myself the out. Mm -hmm. Are you still there? Yes, so, so many uh, of you know, us believe that at least some... Uh, hello? Hello? So Carol, we're doing an audio catch-up here, I think. I think we're okay. back. Okay. Okay, good. Um, so many of us harbor one secret area where we think, oh, that's really sick. Yes. Can you hear me? Okay, and um, for me, as I reveal in Mindset, that was art, drawing. And um, then I read the book, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. They provided um, a workshop to people, a five-day workshop. And, people, and in the book was published... Uh, the before and after self-portraits. The self-portraits people drew on day one and the ones they drew on day five. And it was incredible. On day one you had an array of talents. Some uh, self-portraits looked like kindergarten products. On day five everyone had the most wonderful and even moving self-portraits. Um, so what greater testament to malleability could there be? So I know that we've, we have four children, my wife and I, and it feels to me like um, they actually come wired a little bit differently, maybe more predisposed to uh, sort of naturally think in one direction. Um, do you want to describe kind of the balance of nature-nurture for you in this discussion? Yes. Um, nature is important. Uh, kids do come with different temperaments. And anyone who's been around little kids can see that. Even, even young babies, you can see that. They differ in um, their levels of activity. They differ in the emotions that they tend to feel and display. And so it's possible that there are certain temperaments that incline kids more toward a growth or a fixed mindset. Some kids are charging around the world exploring everything, devil may care. But other kids may be very self-critical and worry about mistakes from a very young age. 
Nonetheless, my research shows that these mindsets can be dramatically affected by nurture, by the environment, by the messages we give to our kids. So I clapped for you there because I, that really resonated with me. Um, how do you recommend approaching people who are significantly involved in your life, either at work or family, who, who really come from a strong, fixed mindset? How, how do I recommend approaching them? Well, first, um, like for Christmas or their birthday, you might give them my book. <laughs> Um, oh, here's a book I read uh, that might be of interest. Um, but also, I think um, it's some people um, can just have a, a discussion about the mindsets. Um, some people can um, just start praising in different ways or communicating other values. Uh, but I think most often it's about describing and discussing the mindsets and um, maybe um, talking about the book. I know a lot of people, um, as you were saying before, Steve, give the book to their family uh, or form discussions. Well, I know one of the things the I book. thought of for myself was I'm going to write Groundhog Day again and watch it with the kids and talk about it from the perspective of the themes in the book. I love Groundhog Day. I talk about Groundhog Day in Mindset. And, um, when in the beginning, uh, everything is about scheming to look good and score. And, uh, and um, he has to get up and experience the same day over and over and over again until he sees that the point of life is learning and helping others not demonstrating how great you are. But it's done in such a creative and entertaining are way. Are there other movies or books that you recommend that people uh, use to help uh, kind of stay on this course? Oh, my. Mm. Let, me, let me pass on that for now, and if something leaps to mind, Okay, I'll, that's fine. I'll come back so to it. we did talk with Linda Darling Hammond uh, yesterday um, about the, and one of the things, the points I think she makes in her books is the preeminent role of teachers uh, over any other factor for student uh, achievement and engagement. Do, do you find a connection with her work and your work at all? Oh, yes, I think teachers are enormously important. Um, but I think that many, many teachers can learn how to um, help children fulfill their potential. And actually, in my research, I find that if you teach the children a growth mindset without even involving the teachers, it really can raise grades and achievement test scores. And teachers tell us they see the difference. Now, if you added to that, the teachers were also supporting students in learning and implementing a growth mindset, it, I think we would just see so extraordinary So this is certainly results. a time when a lot of people are talking about education. Uh, my personal view is that we're going through pretty dramatic changes in information and contributions to information, and so it's causing us to rethink the future of education. Are there policy policy implications, do you think, mm -hmm. for the work that you've done? Do you look at, um, at policy decisions being made and have opinions about them because of mindset? Yes, yes. When I see policy decisions that say, uh, drill and test or that lead to drilling and testing, it breaks my heart because the key to everything in life and the thing that made our society so great is this belief in learning and joy 
in learning, the whole idea that anyone can become anything. And I don't think we got that way through drill and test. Uh, I think we need to leave room. And, and, and when we do that also, we're um, inadvertently creating teachers who don't know how to uh, foster joy of learning because it's really hard to do that in a drill and test context. So when we see policy changes, I think the key thing to think is will this help our children value learning and engage in it more? So I'm going to save you a little on the question of recommended uh, books or movies to watch because you do have a recommended book section in the back of the mindset and I'd forgotten that. Uh, in fact, I. Oh, and I do. I didn't hear the book part. So that I I'm going to recommend that, that, that uh, to those who are listening and to myself again. Um, you tell the story in the book of your own sixth grade teacher, and um, uh, I, I, if, if you're willing to tell it yeah. briefly, I'd appreciate it. But I'm also curious to have you kind of describe our misunderstanding of. IQ and IQ tests. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'll start with my sixth grade teacher. <laughs> um, when I was in the sixth grade, we were seated around the IQ, the room in IQ order. Um, my teacher, Mrs. Wilson, believed that IQ was the ultimate index of your permanent intelligence and your character. Well, this was already the what would today be called the gifted program in, the, in a big school and kind of an upwardly mobile, academically oriented neighborhood already. And yet she thought even subtle differences in IQ were very meaningful. Now, it is so interesting to realize that Alfred Binet, the man who invented the IQ test, had a radical growth mindset. He believed the most fundamental ability to learn could be transformed through education, and that's what his work was all about. He just concocted the IQ test to figure out who were the kids in the Paris public schools who weren't profiting from their curriculum so that he could create a new one for them and help them get back on track. He was livid that Americans and English people with our mania to measure and categorize took his test and used it to measure what they thought was permanent ability. He didn't think you could measure intelligence. He thought that intelligence was so dynamic and multifaceted. This test didn't even measure kind of a small section of it. Um, and yet, again, we in uh, America and many of those people were in this department at Stanford uh, at that point. And so they propagated this idea of fixed intelligence that could be measured by the IQ test. And now we understand that, oh, this, this is just a snapshot at one moment in time. Uh, the IQ score will remain stable if nothing, you know, if things are left to itself, it often has a stability. But it has nothing to say about how children could blossom under the right I'm reminded of the many times that I read that entrepreneurs overwhelmingly struggled with uh, learning, what was called a learning disability. Do you see a connection there between the skills they had to learn mm -hmm. and their ability to succeed in business? Oh, you mean the, the findings that many CEOs yes. were labeled learning disabled? 
Is that what you mean? Yes. Uh, so um, there are different interpretations of that, and, and I think it would be really, really interesting to study. So one is that um, people who have learning disabilities or difficulties often have to learn the power of effort and trying new strategies in order to learn. And so uh, some of them whom I've spoken to really said that um, they understood what, what effort can do. Bruce Jenner, the um, famous Olympic athlete, said he never would have won all those medals if he hadn't been learning disabled. He thought, well, okay, I have some talent here. What if I put the same effort into sports that I have to put into my schoolwork? Um, so that's one um, interpretation. The other is, hey, if you're having a lot of trouble learning, then you have to develop all kinds of other people skills and other skills that will help you get by and that this um, helps people become CEOs. Anyway, I think it would be very, very interesting to know more. I'm going to move us to Q&A. Um, before I do so, there are two things I'd like to do. One of which is that in the chat, many people are referencing other books to material. And I would love it if you would email me. I'm going to put my email address here. Because uh, if there are interviews I need to be doing based on those books, I'm, uh, I would love to follow up on that. I also think it might be kind of fun in the chat if you can think of a movie or something other than a book, a cultural you know, a, a play or, or a cultural activity that you think supports these ideas. Those are the kinds of things I want to build into to my own children's experiences over the next few years. So Carol, before we go to Q&A, mm -hmm. um, what are you working on now? Oh, I'm working on so many different things. We're taking the mindsets in so many different uh, directions. We just created an intervention based on mindsets that is reducing aggression in kids by understanding that they and others can change. Um, we're uh, looking at self-regulation and how people's beliefs about willpower really affect their willpower. For example, there's this belief now in society that coming from research, uh, research that willpower is easily depleted. But we're showing it's only depleted if you think it e is easily depleted. If you think, hey, the more you exert willpower, the better you'll be at it, then that comes true as well. So we're just taking it in, in so many new directions. We're looking at mindsets and health. We're finding, for example, many high school students believe that you're born with a certain amount of health and your behavior doesn't affect it. So there's a lot of education that needs to be done uh, there. And um, we have some preliminary evidence that um, adolescent diabetics who have a growth mindset about their health, the idea that your behavior uh, can greatly affect it, regulate their blood sugar far better than kids who think you're just born with a certain amount of health. So, oh, we're just, the, the research is just exploding in many new directions. I'm that more excited really than ever. And I'm uh, also loving that we're getting some great um, ideas in the chat. Of course, Seabiscuit. I didn't think of that, but it's in the book. Yes, of course. Seabiscuit is in the book. book and the story yeah, of the woman who wrote the book. book. Stand and deliver. Oh yeah, yeah. Good, we're yeah. getting a good list here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so Thank we you. are going to Q and A. If you'd like to ask Carol a question <laughs> using the microphone, do be sure you've uh, gone to Tools Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard. It takes just about 20 seconds, and and go ahead and do that. And make sure your mic is working. Or if you've been in Illuminate before and you know your mic is working, just feel free to raise your hand. That's the hand with the green up arrow, and we'll give you the microphone. You can also put a question in the chat, 
and I'm going to start with one from Bill. And this may not be the first one, so if you missed the question, please feel free to repost it. But Bill says, should schools get rid of gifted and talented programs? That's a very interesting question. And um, realistically, I don't know if they will. And I don't know if they should. But several things. Uh, I've, I've interacted extensively with uh, gifted and talented educators. Uh, more and more people are coming to the belief that giftedness and talent, these are dynamic things. Some kids develop their talent later. Um, through uh, developing a passion. Kids who don't stretch themselves may have been talented when they're younger but not so gifted if they're not developing it. So um, the programs need to, first of all, take this into account. A lot of programs will identify kids in second grade and that's that. They need to understand that kids, other kids are becoming gifted as time goes on. Um, but the important thing is that there's a danger to the gifted label. The gifted label can be like praising intelligence where you're communicating to kids, I value you because you're gifted. And this stunts, it can stunt their intellectual growth. Um, that, that, um, it's incredibly important that kids who are advanced be challenged and stretched. I get a lot of letters from people who are gifted as kids and never fulfilled their potential because they were just told, you're so smart, you'll be this, you'll be that. And they thought that meant if they just sat there with their talent, success would find them. They never learned how to work hard. They never learned how to stretch themselves. And they you were done a, a huge story in the book disservice. About, um, the uh, grandson of one of the famous uh, musical writers. I can't remember his name. But it's really heartbreaking. Yes. Yes. And, and these are people with enormous potential, I mean everyone has enormous potential, but demonstrated abilities who can't get it together to be productive in a sustained way. And that, that's uh, So if you have a question a for Carol, please feel free to raise your hand, the hand with the green up arrow. It's the icon at the bottom of the participant window. Um, Shamini Diaz asks, you mentioned changing mindsets in a more sustained way. What would you say are the critical processes needed to make this happen? Um, so first, um, the kids need to be exposed to the different mindsets and what they are. Then they need to learn about the brain and how it really does grow new connections when they learn. Then that, that way of um, talking, wow, you tried hard, you really, or you stretch yourself, you're really growing those connections. So that kind of talk has to be um, really raised over, t uh, sustained over time. They need to be given tasks that stretch them and uh, uh, they, their learning needs to be uh, pointed out. Also, I mentioned our Brainology program. That You can take a look at that at www.brainology.us. And those of you who are educators can write to info at brainology.us and get a free password to review uh, the program. It's very fun, colorful, interactive, aimed at adolescents, teaches the growth so mindset like and how to apply has it. raised your hand, so if you wanted to ask a follow-up, I'm giving you the microphone. Feel free to click on the larger microphone icon at the bottom to turn your mic on. There you go. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yep. 
we can. Okay, uh, Carol, um, I want to follow up on that question because I'm doing research on the education of teachers. And um, to, to my knowledge so far, I've looked at teacher education programs. This Teachers could do so much if they are doing everything you said, exposing children to the mindset, um, the, the growth models, talking about the brain, using a particular kind of language. But I don't see that we're actually bringing that into teacher education programs as something teachers learn to do. Um, I'm just wondering if you know of any other research that has uh, looked at how we teach teachers this. Yes, I agree with you. Uh, some teacher education programs are beginning to introduce the ideas into their curriculum. However, we are now developing materials for teachers that will help them implement the growth mindset in their classroom. So over the next year or two, we're hoping to make that it's, available. Uh, is this research Thank being done in Stanford? Okay, um, I, I would like to follow up yes. on that sometime because, um, yeah, I have just not seen it done anywhere else. Thank you, Carol. Okay, we've got a Thank couple you. more hands. Uh, before we do so, Colleen asks, is there any connection between understanding of mindsets and adolescent depression? Oh, that's a great question. We've studied this uh, to some degree. And um, we do find that students who have a fixed mindset about themselves, I'm a certain kind of person and I will always be this way, are somewhat more prone to depression. But what's even perhaps more interesting is that when kids in a growth mindset do become somewhat depressed, they get more active. They make sure to keep up with their schoolwork and see their friends and so forth. Uh, so it's, a, it's that growth mindset way of reacting to obstacles. Whereas we found that the students with a fixed mindset um, when they get depressed, then they feel like failures and they let things go. So not just um, a different likelihood of experience dep experiencing depression, but a different reaction to the depression itself. I should make clear I'm just talking about kind of a mild to moderate depression and not a severe clinical so depression. So I want to get to Scott and Carrie who raised their hands. But I think Jane's question in the chat maybe relates to this topic. She's asking about cognitive behavior therapy. How, how does that fit? Because I know you addressed mm -hmm. it in the book. Do you want to explain how you believe that fits with yes. mindset? Yes, I do. Yes. Uh, cognitive behavior therapy is, has you know, um, had substantial success. It changes. It recognizes that our beliefs are the causes of many of our moods and many of our um, maladaptive behaviors. And it, it seeks to change those beliefs to more adaptive ones. However, it often doesn't go the whole route of changing the client's mindset. For example, it'll help someone understand that because you got a B, not an A, it's not the end of the world. Uh, and it will have them think of all the other times they did get A's and all the evidence that they are smart, rather than getting them out of that whole framework entirely of worrying about being smart and seeing everything as a reflection of whether you're smart or not, which is so fixed mindset. And if it got them into the growth mindset of the, uh, with the premium on learning and growing, they wouldn't be evaluating every little thing that happened in terms of their permanent Scott, quality. Scott, I know you put a note in the chat, but I did want to give you a chance to take the microphone. So I've given you microphone capability to turn it on, click on the larger microphone icon on the lower left of your screen. Okay, uh, thanks Steve. 
Carol, uh, some of your work uh, before this book uh, explicitly mentioned motivation, so you have a rich background in that. Could you connect some of your mindset ideas to the ideas of intrinsic motivation and the, some of the new uh, int uh, ideas of interest-based learning? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, the intrinsic motivation is kind of um, maybe the natural interest or enjoyment that kids feel. It's the motivation that comes from within rather than from without. And uh, intrinsic motivation is much easier to sustain in a growth mindset. What we find in our research is when kids are in a fixed mindset and they think their performance is measuring them, they can only enjoy it if they're doing well. As soon as they start having setbacks, confusions, or difficulties, their interest goes way down. Not so for um, students in a growth mindset. Even when we followed kids, uh, we followed kids in very difficult courses, and even if they're not doing well, they can still say they're enjoying it. Interest-based education, I think it's so important to find materials that kids can derive, can, can, can have interest in, and the interest and joy of probing the materials and learning can sustain them. At the same time, I think that we need to um, develop in kids the habit of challenge seeking and resilience even when the material is less than interesting. Um, Anders Ericsson, who, um, who many of you may have read about in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, well, he studies the most, most successful people and finds that, um, yes, they have passion and dedication, but they also systematically address their weaknesses in very unenjoyable ways. A lot of um, being a great musician is practicing the scales or, you know, you may or may not enjoy that. And a lot of being a great golfer is doing the swings from the traps, thousands and thousands. You may or may not enjoy that. So in, in addition to having the material be enjoyable, which I think is great, uh, we also need to help kids um, persevere when it's not so much fun. So this may be our last question. Carrie, I'm going to give you the microphone. You can click on that lower left-hand microphone icon. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hi, Carol. Um, I'm kind Hi. of um, really glad to get to ask you this question um, because I got to see you this summer at the Klingenstein Institute. and. Um, we are in day three right now of our teacher work week, getting ready for school to start. I'm a middle school teacher. And we're talking a lot about grading, like what does an A mean, what does a B mean, um, grading for mastery, all of these terms keep getting thrown around. My question to you is, um, what is the best way to, first of all, reflect the mindset, the growth mindset in our grading system mm -hmm. and in your own classes that you teach um, at Stanford, how do you reflect those in your grading system that you use? Yeah, I think um, a number of teachers have told me that they're um, starting to incorporate growth mindset uh, qualities into the grades so that if a student has coasted and done well, well, that's not A. And if someone has really, really improved, that counts in their grade. And that's what I do with my students at Stanford. Um, uh, first of all, I ha when I, I tell them that if they're disappointed in any grade they get on papers or tests, they're to come to me or my TAs if it's a large course. And we will teach them the skills they need to do well in the course. And second, if they haven't put in that effort and improved over time, I will bump up their grade. So I think it's really, really important to, um, you know, you can't, to, to show that you really, really value those growth mindset qualities 
of um, challenge, seeking, and perseverance. And we've got to follow through in the grades if kids are going to believe us. Carol, I'm going to clap for you now. We're going to close things out. We're, we're right at the top of the hour. Uh, thank you so much for coming, and thank you for the book. You're welcome. Very welcome. You can see the clapping. Yes. Thank you. Thanks to those of you who have attended. Thanks to Illuminate and Learn Central for sponsoring the series. Please do look at this list, and if there's an, an interview coming up you'd like to join us for, we'd love to have you. Um, Carol, uh, any final words? Yes. Um, love learning. Teach your kids to love learning. And I will send you the names of my favorite books. Well, you don't need the, with the books. I, well, you're welcome to send them to me, and I'll put them on my blog. Um, but well, I can let you off the hook if the list at the back of the book works. And, and in return, I will send you the list of movies that people gathered, which okay, I'll also I'd post on the blog. I love that. There are a bunch of fantastic new books, too. I'll send you the names. Oh, good. If you do, I will post them on the blog. Thank you, Carol. Thanks, everybody, for coming. What a great pleasure, a great book, and uh, really appreciate your being here tonight.